You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Oneofus.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber supported. Please consider becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net. Keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well. It's time for another digital noise with special guest host John Golson. Hello. <laughs> I don't know what that was, but I like it. It felt um, like you're like a horror like show host or maybe a guest guy on Mystery Science Theater. Well, I'm glad to be here, Chris. <laughs> so glad to be in the dungeon. You would have made a great horror show host. Joe Bob I, Briggs know, would have nothing on you. I've heard that before. I've heard that before from people. Um, <laughs> That's really something know, people have gone like. something. It's weirdly specific, but yes, I've had people tell me, you know what? <laughs> what? You would make like a good horror host. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, it, you just have you know. to get better at your instinctual alliteration mm-hmm. uh, and um, really bad priming. Yeah. Yeah. And do I have to talk in a bad Boris Karloff? Like, do I have to do that? Kind of like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you have to pick no, I have to. that one. Puns. Yeah, I'm lots of puns. puns. Okay. Uh, well, that's kind of Elvira's gig, though. Yeah. That's why I couldn't watch I those. Does anybody use puppets extensively? I feel like that's I a, don't think so. I feel like there's a gap there. Yeah, for I'm going to write this down. Yeah. Somebody mm-hmm. call Shudder mm-hmm. right away. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we're here to cover movies, so let's cover movies. And we've got a whole stack of stuff to talk about this week, so let's start off with uh, the one that, gee, I'm looking down the list here. No, it's not my pick of the week, but it would be uh, if not for one other thing here. And But it's really close, and that is the film The Quake. Now, this played uh, Fantastic Fest last year. It was a sequel to another film that played... Uh, fantastic fest the previous year called the wave this is a norwegian like blockbuster disaster film which sounds like words i never thought i would hear myself say that's for sure but that is a thing norway is like you know those big old school disaster movies we're all in baby yeah (laughs) let's do this thing i guess they're like looking around at all the other countries and the ways they've got their little subset genres of things they do it's like anybody else doing a disaster movie no okay we'll take it uh, but I got to tell you, they're doing a pretty good job so far. I still haven't gone to watch The Wave. Everyone raves about it. Um, and I've been told maybe The Quake would have had a little bit more of like an emotional punch if I had seen The Wave. Oh, no. I actually think you probably liked The Quake more because you hadn't seen The Wave. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you think because The Wave is better? I think The Wave is is better. And I think that Quake spins for a for a sequel to a movie. It spends a heck of a lot of time doing kind of meaningless character stuff till it gets to the meat of the quake. And I'm like, if you're doing a sequel, I already know these people. Like I already met them. Get to the quake. Okay. So, cause, <laughs> so, cause because I hadn't, yeah. I actually found these characters in their development. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, but the, I think is, that helped it. So this dad and his wife and his little daughter survived this giant tidal wave that came before that apparently was the cause of tectonic type shit. Like it was like caused by some sort of undersea yeah. quake or something. Yeah. So he's convinced that this problem, it, it's not over. We haven't seen the end of this yet. And he's taken, he's gone off 
away from his wife and daughter who still live in the city and he's living up in the kind of in the mountains by himself. Uh, and, and, uh, is, even though he was hailed as a hero after the events of the last film was very famous, he just wanted nothing to do with it. He's getting divorced from his wife. Um, he's just trying to figure out what to do next, how to, how to convince the world there's something going on. And he finds out after his, uh, a colleague of his died while investigating more in this tunnel, he's like, I need to know what happened. Uh, and so it leads to a, a process of him investigating and being the guy, you know, who's, who's screaming out like, guys, this is, you don't understand. This is about to get like way worse, like mm-hmm. way worse. I mean, well, of course his wife and child are wandering around the city doing things in places that you're constantly like, Oh, if the quake hits, this is going to be a bad place to be. And the quake keeps not hitting. It's just like, Oh, we're going to shake a little, but no, it's fine. I didn't even realize Norway was that like unstable. Like yeah, you you were like no way, no jeez. Are you preparing for the horror host yeah, gig now? That's pun number one. Yeah, okay, fair enough. We'll keep that ding little ticker <laughs> yes. at the bottom of the screen there. Uh, and so eventually, and you're right, it is a good ways into the film. It's mm-hmm. it's over the halfway mark before the big one finally oh, yeah, strikes. Well into the movie. And when it does, it turns into a series of set pieces of surviving that are really so well constructed. There's a whole thing with a building that's slowly tilting over and just more and more becoming a horizontal room becoming vertical that I thought it goes on for a good 20 minutes and it's really a well-constructed scene. Mm. I was kind of startled to figure out even how they did it. And shockingly, there actually is a, a extra feature on this thing that, that shows you the whole thing. They built this whole thing and put it on, uh, on, on a machine that tilts it up and down with yeah. green screen around it. And it, it looked amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it looks as, the effects are really good. Um, the wave kind of takes everybody and separates them into their own little, uh, own personal kind of moments of peril. Mm-hmm. So the film has other things to kind of cut to during the big finale. Um, I feel like the quake, a lot of it is kind of localized around that one big set piece, and it is a really good set piece. It's a big set, big, um, big part of the film. Yeah. For me, I, I was left. I mean, to be completely honest, was left a little unsatisfied just simply because with the nature of this being a sequel, I think they could have gotten to the action a lot quicker than than they did. Okay. So you were just like, I know, like you said, I know these people. I'm done with them. Let's just let watch them start to die. I just felt like there should have been, you know, a lot of times you see these kind of movies and they'll open with some kind of big action scene or have some moment of quake that sort of sets the sets some level of anticipation and then kind of goes right. and follows people for like a good 45 minutes and then comes around. Well, that's the entire first movie. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I guess so. This one. Yeah. It's just sort of like it's, it, it, it sort of, uh, for the first 45 minutes or so. I mean, yeah, they talk about the fact that there's seismic activity, but a difference between it and like an American blockbuster is there's, n- there are no, um, foreshadowing like asides, that that show you the peril and then like kind of tease that like a carrot dangling and then go back to the character stuff. It's like everything is kind of the character stuff is all kind of built around like, uh, you know, this thing that, that looks like it's likely to happen and then, and then does in the last 30 minutes of the movie. Right. I don't think it's bad. I don't think it's a bad movie, but I, but I did expect, I think I expected to like it more because I was like, oh, cool, like a, a sequel. And I guess, are they making more of these? It sure feels like it at the end. They're kind of like, next time on. <laughs> I don't know what, what would well, be next. I don't know. Like, the tornado. Like, yeah, it feels like they're leading up to 
there has to be one that's sort of like the the sort of the end all be all because the, the where the quake ends is like it's but it, it focuses so heavily on the hotel that you kind of just go well that hotel is wrecked yeah that um, hotel is done yeah but it doesn't necessarily paint the picture of Oslo being like completely wrecked as much as like a portion of Oslo. Right. So I feel like there's still like something they could sort of like build on. They insinuate like this is even this one is, is just building up to a bigger one. If you like, if you like, uh, like the Roland Emmerich style, like day after tomorrow or 2012, um, but you you always wished it was more realistic and character drawn. Yeah. It's a little (laughs) more realistic. It's a little more character driven. Um, then this might be for you. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like I said, not having seen the first one, I thought it was great. But um, now you make me really want to go watch The Wave, So, which is on Shudder, I believe. Is it? I think so. Uh, it was on Netflix at one point. I have no idea if it still is, but I'm reasonably sure it's on Shudder. Our next film, I'm going to leave it to John Golson to describe, because oh, he, he, with great mirth, sent me the Japanese cover of oh, this movie, man. Accident, oh, which was so awesome. Uh, much better than the boring-ass American one, but this this, this movie is is a thing, and I'm going to let him describe the plot here. So it starts off, and there's these two girls that have tickets to this concert, and right away, you know, some movies stretch the credibility of, like, your suspension of disbelief right away. Oh, yeah. And this one begins with, hey, I got the tickets to this hot concert that everybody wants to go to. Now let's get on the bus. And the friend is like, ha-ha, I didn't get us bus tickets to travel there. I thought we could just hitch a ride or ask strangers Well, didn't they ha- They had a second plan that didn't work out. I forget what it is was. It, yeah, there was some other backup plan, no, and well, then she, it fell through. She, she at the beginning was like, well, let's, like, where are the bus tickets, right? Yeah. And her friend was like, ha-ha, no. No bus tickets. Right, but then she but she did have some backup plan, like someone was supposed to come pick them up or something, and then they didn't weren't answering their phone. I was like, oh, fuck. Oh, was there a little bit about calling somebody? Yeah, and I don't know what the deal was, but I was like, okay. Well, they're picked up by these two guys. Um, you and, can say it, douche nozzles. Yeah, and, uh, you know, they hit the road with these guys, and it's like instant making out. <laughs> And they get in an accident, hence the title. Yeah, and discover that the car was hot, and then, uh, and then a helicopter shows up and shoots it to shit. It's terrible. <laughs> this movie's terrible. And let me just say that, like, immediately the the street signs. I was like, wait, this is not America. Like, I realize this is supposed to be America, but that's not what American highway signs look like. When they then the car pulls up to give them a ride, the steering wheel's on the opposite side. Yeah. But it's also not British. And then they go to a convenience store, and all the labels in the convenience store are just slightly off of what you would expect from an American convenience store. So you're store. like, where did this take place? It was shot in South Africa. Oh. Uh, and, and it was shot as if it was the U.S., because they talk about they're in California. They're supposed to be in California. As if no... Citizen of the United States would notice that the steering wheel is on the opposite side of the, in the car. It did. I don't think it occurred to me to think about it, but maybe it's just because everything else is so bombastic. Yeah, it was. Um, it was well photo. It was. It was well lit, and it was in focus. Uh, I will give it that. I so. actually would go so far as to say I thought it was pretty well shot. Yeah, I, I, there's a lot of moments for cinematography. I was like, "Wow, that was a really interesting choice that you made," and, I, and it was noticeable. It was mm-hmm. like, "Whoa, that was a cool shot." I don't think the acting is as bad as you 
would expect. It's not great, but it's not anywhere near as bad as the script is. It's not bad enough to be fun. And I think there's a sequence that should have been the whole movie where they're trapped in this car and they're like, shit, it's unbreakable glass. There's various elements around it that are making it very difficult, like where they're just between a rock and a hard place. And I'm like, I would have liked to have seen that scenario in and of itself continue to play out because that was interesting. I was like, whoa, this is kind of cool. How are they going to escape this? It's like a puzzle they got to figure out. But then they go into this whole subplot with gangsters and shit out of goddamn fucking nowhere. And I was like, all right. All right, maybe you've had an, you you've had enough of my time. It's, yeah, you you need to write me an apology letter because that was that was just weird decision making. Like this this was uh, this this was an, an experience. <laughs> the the Japanese poster looks like an action movie from the early two thousands. It's like a a girl in like denim shorts in the middle of a road holding a gun while a car is like exploding and flipping over her through the air. And I sent it to I sent it to you like. I was still watching the movie when I sent it to you because I could tell I was like halfway through and, and started looking up information about the movie and I saw that poster and I was like, yeah, there's no way, even if I get to the end of this, there's no way this poster is indicative of this movie that I'm watching. And there's like a lot of just bad decision making. Like there's a guy, one of the guys like right off the bat from the accent, he's got essentially a big ass spear through his chest, Mm -hmm. right? And they, like, pull him off it. And later, he's, like, in a physical fucking punch-up fight with a dude. And you're like, no. Yeah. No. (laughs) I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't know what's happening. Maybe you're secretly a vampire or something, but no. I have a tough time figuring out, like, I guess this is a thriller. Is how you would describe it? It's definitely not something I would think of as a horror movie, despite that it kind of felt like that's how we're marketing it. Yeah, and I think they meant horrible. That's what they meant. They got that wrong somewhere in translation. But there is a degree of, like, eminent bad movie watchability about this thing, though. There's something, yeah. It's never, it's not quite, um, it never hits that, like, you know, some bad movies just get boring. Yeah. And it, it never got to that place with me. Like, I did, I did consume it all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, and, it, and it's paced as such that it's over relatively, it felt like it was over relatively quickly. Yeah. Um, I never considered going this, I can't take this. I'm just going to turn it off, which happens, <laughs> which does happen sometimes. There are movies I get 30 minutes into and I'm oh, like, man, fuck this. This they, is nonsense. one in this stack. I know which one it is. I bet. Um, this one is one you can actually, especially you're with a buddy and you have some beers and you watch this, you're probably going to have a good time going into it laughing at it. Yeah. Because it is like, it just doesn't stop with its fucking stupid decisions I, and in, weird shit that happens. That is a great sell because I did probably, I don't normally like comment during a movie nonstop, but mm. this one pretty much I was... I had asides for like every single thing I was seeing. I had something to say about it to Wendy. Oh, we man. were watching it together and I was just like... That's not American. Wait, that's not California. Wait, that's not... I can't wait to hear what you have to say about a movie in your next stack that is, I think, the single most absurdly bad giallo I've ever seen in my entire life. We actually had a good time watching it. We were just laughing and kind of mystery science theatering at one point because there was nothing else you could do. All right. (laughs) All right. Anyway, that's that's next show. Yeah, that's next one. But anyway, uh, yeah... There's no extra features here, which should surprise absolutely no one. Uh, Let's move on to another one, which is also not terribly good, but I will at least give it points for what seems to be like the guys who made Book of Monsters feel like people I would probably get along with. 
I get your references. I get the type of movie you're trying to make. You clearly really like Peter Jackson's Dead Alive mm-hmm. a lot. And you're like, wow, let's do kind of our own take on that. A little bit of Evil Dead, stuff like that. Very tongue-in-cheek, but very splat-stick he- splat comedy. Yeah. I'm like, I'm with you guys. It just, you needed some more professional people maybe working on this because it's just missing, almost every aspect of it is falling short on some level. Yeah, and I would have had, like, so apparently this was a Kickstarter, and they let the patrons of the Kickstarter at different pledge levels vote on what was monsters gonna were included and what kills were going to happen in the film. Oh, my God. And so this movie, Book of Monsters, it follows this... this uh, Girl's mother has this book that has all this ancient crap in it. It's basically the Necronomicon from yeah, Evil Dead. Fox but it's also got all these monsters in it. And if the book is open, the monsters sort of appear. And they interrupt her, like, sweet 16 birthday party, which is super gross. Her daughter's sweet 16. All, all this, yeah. All these women that play these high schoolers are all, like, look like they're in their late 20s and early 30s, like, from Go. Oh my God! Like there's there's one or two of these that I'm like you're forty. I'm sorry, yeah. you're forty. Well, that, that's the thing too is like I don't know why you don't, I don't know why you wouldn't write and create around what your means are. Mm-hmm. So why not make them adults? Why aren't they just having like a dinner party? Well, yeah, instead of it being like because I don't buy them as high school. Well, it's, it's actually it, instance, it's 18th birthday. For oh, the 18th record, birthday. But sorry. still, you're sorry. like you're there, you guys have 18 yeah. is a long way. In the they, they, yeah, they don't look. None of them look 18. Yeah, and and again, going back to the monsters, it's like I'd rather have two or three really awesome monsters than like six or seven lame ones. Yeah, and that's it's like this is kind of cool that there's okay, so there's a core monster. They're somewhere that's supposed to be the toughest of all, but they're the reason all these other monsters are popping up and they've got to fig- figure out who, where the core monster is and how to defeat it. And along the way, defeat all the other monsters. And there's more than enough people who are at this party to have lots and lots of body count of people yeah. just dying regularly, including quite a few of the main characters. Not that you care, but because you certainly don't have any emotional investment on any level. And it's not the sort of movie that's selling itself on that either. No, but. And, you know, you're saying, like, on every level, there's something missing where you're like, you guys are heading the right direction. Like, that idea. That's a solid idea for a fun little splat stick comedy. But there's just, you're falling short of completing it, of making it truly feel like it's its own thing. Same thing with all the gore effects, of which there are many. Always, like, let's shoot this gore effect super close up so you can't tell how bad it actually is. Like, that we didn't actually spend very much money doing it. You know? Yeah. Like, it, it's... To gore what American action film directors who edit the shit out of a scene so I could look like I'm Chuck Norris. You know, it's that type of thing where you're like, you can tell. We know. That was not that was not a very well done piece of, uh, of like, practical work. You just cho- chose to sh- shoot around it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take itself very seriously, which I think helps a lot. And only um, 81 minutes. Yeah, it, it's got – there's something about it that kind of, like – I mean, you can tell it's scrappy. You can tell it's made by people who love horror. Yeah. It's got a certain uh, energy to it. It doesn't take itself seriously. But it its reach it overextends its grasp, and it's sort of like... It, it's almost like the movie probably would have been better had they had their ambitions been less. I agree. I think, I think it really suffers from how ambitious it actually is. Yeah. Somehow makes it worse. Um, but... Uh, but I, you know, a for effort. <laughs> yeah. I can't, I can't help but be on these guys side the whole time, yeah. but I'm also like, yeah, I think your biggest problem is your, 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 uh, what was it? Grasp extends your, I always forget how to say that expression. Your reach extends your grasp. Thank you. That's the one I wanted to like this. 
it's okay, but it's nothing um, that I have a big time recommending, except for the amazing poster they got done for it. The the actual artwork on this thing is mm-hmm. like, wow, that's yeah, super cool, really, cover. really pretty, but uh, like way prettier than anything else in the actual movie. But hey, what are you going to do? Uh, our next movie is we're going to woo away from genre and into. Uh, somebody who is truly evil. Divide and conquer the story of Roger uh, Ailes. I was to say Clint Eastwood. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't know if I would call Clint Eastwood truly evil. A little addle-brained, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's what we call these days a light Republican. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, no. Roger Ailes, on the other hand, is what we call well, the, probably the reason the Republican Party exists in the form that it does today. You know, I remember when I used to get annoyed at my conservative friends, like, "Well, we get into fights, but." They were never like, let's rip each other's throat out. I feel like we can come to at least some kind of understanding of, well, I guess that's where we're going to have to disagree, as opposed to hoping that aliens come down and kill all of them. Mm. Uh, you know, the old Reagan Republicans, if you will. There aren't a lot of those guys left. What we have now is this weird, rabid, zombie Republican Party. And this guy, Roger Ailes, who is the guy who who was basically the showrunner for Fox News, although Rupert Murdoch owned it, his his big trusty magical gun was Roger Ailes who ran the whole thing and he was a piece of fucking human garbage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was. I have no I I have never said this about anybody else in my life. But when he died, I actually was like, look, saying, I'll ne- you'll never see me say this about almost anyone else, but good. Fuck that guy. I hope he's burning in hell. <laughs> And yeah, um, this film makes a good case for all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, pr- I particularly liked the story about them uh, handpicking uh, Mitch McConnell and helping him ascend, uh, that he was sort of like a bland, nothing candidate, and they created a commercial where he was fishing, and they put a fish on the end of his rod and put the fish in the water, and he was supposed to lift it up out of the water, and they called action, he didn't lift it up out of the water, and they were like, Mitch, what are you doing? You got to raise the fish up. And he says, I don't do anything unless Roger Ailes tells me. And I was just like, Oh yeah. boy. Yeah. Like, and this is somebody who we see on the news every single day now. I yeah. Mean, this was back in the early eighties, maybe late. I think it was early eighties. Yeah. It was late seventies. Um, and I was just floored by that anecdote. I was like, good God. Like, and they also talked about things a little, it was a little eye opening because I don't watch Fox news is how much. Trump was a character on Fox News for the years leading up to the election, so he was somebody that their viewers already knew and enjoyed listening to. Yeah. Um, he was, you know, a frequent guest on every single one of their shows, which I don't think that I really knew that. Uh, uh, so they talk about that as well. Um, yeah, it was um, it was eye-opening. It was surprisingly, <coughs> you know, and to some degree, yes, it has an association with the Republican Party and conservatives, but the movie doesn't necessarily get into ideology. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get heavily into what Roger Ailes even actually believed as much as it does how he would, how he would go about like handpicking somebody and then sort of like designing everything around ensuring that his guy was the guy that won. Yeah. I mean, um, as much as it's, as it's, it shouldn't have been called divide and conquer. It should have been called Kingmaker because yeah. that's well, they say what that he, so many times yeah, in the movie. Too. Exactly. Cause that's who, what he, openly thought of himself as yeah uh he he i mean he's this is a guy who regularly said there's no republican party without me things mm-hmm. like that like i am the guy 
I am the God. <laughs> I mean, he had a bit of an ego and he did. He's responsible for creating so many major right wing personalities and politicians and changing the way that entire party went from, from bad to insane. I mean, that's all on this guy and, to some level. laying open this idea of, um, of instigating fear and paranoia as a means to keep viewers trapped in a, in a, basically a watch cycle mm-hmm. so that they don't leave the TV. Yeah. That was the thing that I found interesting. Again, not going back to ideology and being like, he truly believed these things, which is why he had the people on his channel say them. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even that so much as he figured out a formula that would get people to not change the channel. And then he fed that formula 24 hours a day. Yep. Uh, and I was just like, that's so insidious. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, like I don't believe in, absolutes of good and evil but if i was to come up with a portrait of actual evil it's this guy like this guy who cared about nothing but profit you know it's all he ever cared about he had no real moral center that i'm aware of that i can tell i mean even some of the worst presidents you can go well but there were moments that shined through that you can see their humanity i can't find any with roger ailes Mm -hmm. he's just he was just garbage and uh this is done by this alexis bloom who's done a lot of really good documentaries but probably i best know him from the really good we steal steal secrets the story of wikileaks which came out in 2013 which is also an excellent doc there's no question that this documentary will make you very very mad but i think it also is extremely instructional in learning how did this happen exactly? And, and, and not blaming the figureheads, but understanding it really was people behind the scenes who manipulated the whole system to get us to where we are now. And I wondered if my, I wondered how my Fox News watching family members might respond to it because it doesn't necessarily draw any ideological lines. And I, and it has people on there that are, have been burned by Roger Ailes who are, you know, Republicans. And I kind of wondered, like, would this help them see why people rail against Fox News? Because it doesn't get into the politics. Would this help them actually see, like, no, this is the origin story, and this is Roger Ailes' fall from grace, and, like, do you do you get why all this is vilified? Like, do you understand why, why Bill O'Reilly is considered by a lot of people, like, a, you know, a garbage person, or... <clears throat> You know, or why the why the network is talked about so derisively. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it, it might work. I have no idea. I mean, I, I would think if anything, it makes a stronger argument against it simply because it doesn't bring up. It's so weird for me to say it doesn't bring up politics. It's all about politics. But it's not interested in bringing in a lot of people who are going to talk about Roger Ailes the way I've been talking about him. Like, of yeah. just going, I hope that this guy is eaten inside out by maggots for all eternity. Like, there's nobody on here from the left on the whole coming in. They're looking right. at the people from within the party itself who yeah. dealt with him. And, a lot of people that worked right alongside him. Right, exactly. Yeah. All right, well, next up is Tyrell. This is a drama film directed by Sebastian Silva, a Chilean director, actor, screenwriter, painter, and musician. Um, it actually got reasonably good reviews when it came out at uh, Sundance Film Festival. It's also, uh, if you're familiar with the, the great actor, uh, Reg E. Cathy, who, uh, people, a lot of people know him from Norman Wilson on The Wire, Martin Quirns in Oz, uh, Square One TV. Uh, huh? Square One. Is that? On PBS. Really? He used to be on Square One, the math, the kids' educational math show. Now we're really dating ourselves. Uh, he was Freddie Hayes on House of Cards. Um, he's a, a legendary, uh, character actor for sure. And one of those guys, the moment you hear his voice, you can see his face. You're like, oh yeah, I know that guy. Anyway, so this movie, which 
weirdly marketed itself as comparing itself to Get Out, which I'm like, mm, not, no, not even a little bit. Uh, they're like, oh, but it's a young African-American protagonist feeling uncomfortable around white people. So it's exactly like Get Out. My, I like the fact that the quote says it's this year's answer to Get Out, and right. it came out the same year as Get Out. I know, out. I know. <laughs> it was just like, come on, guys, you got to try harder than that. Which isn't to say that I think this is a bad film, because I don't. It's just so slight as to almost be unnoticeable. I think I think you have to know that it's not a horror film. Yes. Um, but I wouldn't go any farther than that in regards to knowing anything about it. I really responded well to this film. Oh, really? Um, okay, good. I, I really dug it. I had a sense of dread and anticipated the worst happening for the duration of its runtime, which was definitely where they wanted me to live. Like, I really felt like the filmmakers wanted me to live in a place of anticipation and dread, and that's where they had me the whole time. Now, I've heard some people criticize it because it, they felt like the, the payoff wasn't strong enough, but... It's not really that kind of movie. I, I kind of went, you know what? Yeah, I'm fine with feeling that and not getting payoff, if that's the... Because I feel like they got the appropriate response from me. And there's little touches about it that I like. Like, I love... The use of REM music is like coding for white guys. Right. Um, even though I love REM, but I'm also a white guy. Right. And I was just like, I love this like very specific reference. Um, this, I, it's, I, it's a black friend. He's going with his buddy to this cabin out in the woods for the birthday party of somebody he's never met before, played by a column. Um, uh, oh, uh, uh, is it Caleb Landry Jones? Caleb Landry Jones. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Caleb Landry Jones. Um, and while he's out there, it's just one of the, it's kind of a, you know, it's an, it's indie, it's a drama, it's got a, it's a little bit of a thriller and that it, it, again, it puts you in his position of feeling that sense of dread and in regards to feeling like the other, like you are the odd man out. You are the one that's not supposed to be there. And where will that go? Uh, I mean, it's definitely, okay. So this movie is for people, anyone who's ever been at a party and realized that they didn't really this was just not their scene yeah but there was no way they were going to get to leave anytime soon right i tend to be one of those people who can have a good time in an insurance seminar mm. i will find a way to have a good time at any given gathering and i'm really i've always been that way so to some degree i couldn't identify i was like okay also being a white guy probably didn't help um but the fact that it's his race actually doesn't have a hell of a lot to do with what it seems like the movie is is toying with here. Like, I mean, it comes into it here and there, but it's definitely not like get out in any way in that, yes, that is the thrust, is race relations. There's some differences that do have to do with race between them and these guys, but it's not something that most of the time is the major issue so much as just, he's just not, this just isn't his scene, man. Like, like at one point, you know, you, you feel it's cringy. This is like after the first night where he goes to bed early. Cause he's like, I just can't deal with this second night. He's like, okay, my answer is I'm going to instead let myself get really drunk. And that's maybe that's the answer. I'll get really drunk and have a good time. And that's not really the answer either. Sorry. My cat is torturing uh, John over here. Apparently. Sorry. Don't he, he literally climbed up my leg like a tree and I was just like, <laughs> <laughs> I was trying not to make any sounds on the mic. It was really funny watching your face, though. Um, um, uh, Michael Sarah appears he in plays this. An alpha male, like y yeah, how great is that? Like, like you've never seen Michael Sarah play an he alpha. He plays male. the most outrageous of this group yeah. of friends, who like isn't even there at first. He's 
kind of like the guy who finally shows up and was like, the party's here. And he's you're the like, art Michael school alpha Sarah? male, which is like a very specific kind of alpha male, but he's definitely like the art school alpha male. You know, I think about when I went to Wendy's, my, my girlfriend is black. And when I went to her family, uh, for the first time for like Thanksgiving dinner, I was acutely aware of my otherness in a way that I felt was like super healthy. I think it's healthy for people to feel that way sometimes because I sure. never think about her when she's in a situation with like my all white family or my all white friends and she's the only black person there and she just, it, it, there is a, you can be not prejudiced, not racist, you know, or, or, you know, feel pretty woke about yourself, but there's still this feeling of like, you're acutely aware of like, I'm the only white guy in the room. Sure. The in those situations. Yeah. And I think that I think that it's healthy to feel those things. I think you often shouldn't be the only white guy in the room, and right. and um, and yeah, I really I really dug this. I liked this a lot more than I thought I would. Okay, fair enough. It has a great cast too. Also, we did mention Christopher Abbott, uh, who's a pretty major actor these days, been appearing in a lot of stuff, uh, is in this as the best friend. Jason Mitchell is playing uh, the lead role here, who people know playing Easy E from Straight Outta Compton with a very prominent role as well as being in uh, Kong Skull Island, Detroit, and Mudbound. So, major young actor on the rise here. And Dowd, if you watch a lot of television, she's like on absolutely any good show at one point, and Dowd is going to be cast on it for a yeah. season. She's one of those actresses you're like, oh, I know her. I always think of her from the, uh, what's the movie with her and Pat Healy and the the uh, based on the true story fast food restaurant stuff where the guy has the girl on the phone and makes her take off all her clothes? Hmm. What's the name of that movie? Compliance? Compliance, yeah. I yeah. From that. Oh, yeah. That was with Pat Healy, isn't it? Um, she was in Marley and Me, Side Effects, St. Vincent, Captain Fantastic, Hereditary, The Manchurian Candidate, Garden State. She only has a small role in here, but it's a neat. It was my favorite moment in this whole mm. film where he basically, the guy is like, okay, I got to get out of here. Maybe I'll just walk home. And he, and he ends up walking to the neighbor's house who they had met briefly before and Dowd, who, whose husband is, is a black man. And there's a sort of like, well, this is an interesting sudden dynamic going on here. What is going to happen? And ultimately nothing really, but it's an, it's a fascinating little sort of confrontation of personalities that are happening there yeah. and watching him sort of, Try to figure out what the fuck is happening because he's drunk. <laughs> Super drunk. Yeah. Uh, anyway, well, differing feelings about uh, uh, Tyrell, but let's move on to our next film as soon as I get my thing to work here, which is the one I suspect is going to be the movie you said is your least favorite one, which is Ritual, a psycho magic story. What the hell even is this movie? <laughs> like, what, what was this? All right, so a full confession here. I'm a big Alejandro Jodorowsky fan. Okay. And, and Jodorowsky is involved in this only to the degree to which he actually plays a character, and there's lots of references to him, like, scattered throughout the film. Mm. And there's certainly some degree of influence, although it feels like they don't understand, actually, Jodorowsky's techniques whatsoever. Like, I've seen a lot of Jodorowsky films, and this definitely did not feel like one, despite having it all over the cover, all references throughout the film. Uh, as to what it is, shit, man, you got me. Um, uh, it's an Italian movie from the directing duo Giulia Brazar and Luca and Messi. Um, Messi is a good way of describing this film. Uh, it's this girl, Leah. She has a boyfriend with with Victor, and they have a lot of hot sex, but it's also really kind of abusive as well. Yeah, he's like super controlling. 
Yeah. And she has unresolved feelings about her first period, so she As you did. is urged to go visit her family. Well, it's it, like apparently it's supposed to be a, she had a secret abortion, I guess, at some okay. point. Uh, I don't know. But um, so, yeah, she goes to the countryside to visit her aunt, who is a witch, something. I don't know what the term is in Italy, but it feels like not witch doesn't, isn't accurate, but whatever it is. And, um, and Victor ends up following her out there and that causes problems. And there's a lot of hallucination and there's two imaginary kids running around, uh, do stuff. And it tries to be kind of abstract and surreal, but I'll be goddamned if I could figure out what it was getting at most of the time. Yeah. And most of the time it just kind of sits there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so excited about this one. This was not a film that I enjoyed. I I tell you when I checked out is when, you know how movies will try to depict artists or like stand up comedy. And a lot of times it like rises and falls on you're depicting art in a movie. It better feel like real art. Or, you know, if you're depicting stand up in a movie, it better feel like real stand up. Yeah. Anyway, there's a scene at the beginning of this where, or songs, anything that's like creative where it's like encapsulated in a movie. There's a scene at the beginning of this where she goes in an art gallery and the, it's a video installation piece of, pistons moving up and down to orgasm noises and i was like okay like that's so on the nose and so it reminded me of like was it naked gun where he has with the moment of orgasm where it shows the pistons and it shows guns fire car entering a tunnel it shows all that yeah like it reminded me of that i'm like that's basically the orgasm scene from naked gun as like installation art in this like pretentious ass perfume commercial of a movie which you know i love that the yeah, the, and the movie's almost trying to call out that art exhibit as pretentious, and I'm like, you guys just don't get it, do you? Because you're a lot more pretentious than that art exhibit is. I hate using that term. I hate even throwing around that term, because it it's so subjective, and ultimately, it's just, it's like intellectual snobbery to use it in almost every situation, but this is one I'm going to, I'll allow it. Yeah, it, it, I don't, I did not find that there was anything necessarily like, deeper going on. Um, yeah, the whole thing just felt like, you know, sometimes you watch stuff too and it's like, well, I don't get it, but it's obvious somebody else might. Right. This was like, there's, this is really, really shallow. And again, using the word, the pretense is that it's really deep. Yeah. Like the pretense is that, the, oh, this is like, has a lot of layers and is super symbolic and it's sort of like, no, this is pretty much on the surface. Like you're yeah. kind of just like, showing me things and none of them are really clicking or resonating or there's not really any drama or like it's just and this character takes her clothes off constantly but who cares it's not not the scenes where she's but that are supposed to be super erotic aren't even terribly well shot to make them erotic i'm like nothing about this is stimulating yeah i did not care for it okay so our next one well actually i don't know if you've seen or not if you haven't I strongly encourage you to, although it could take a while. And that is, finally, after all this time, they've put out one of the single best television shows ever made on Blu-ray. And it's just kind of startling it took this long. Webster. How did you know? No, it's Mr. Belvedere, of course. Come on, man. No, it's not Mr. Belvedere or Webster. It is The Shield, uh, the Michael Chiklis... I'm still kind of shocked he's not an A-list Hollywood actor at this point, because in The Shield, he won, like, all these Emmys. Everyone in the world was like, Jesus Christ, Chiklis is one of the best actors in the world. This is a show that I 
am the guy when anyone brings up the wire, go, yeah, yeah, wire's good. Have you seen the shield? I think this was better than the wire. I'm going to die on that hill. God damn it. <laughs> I absolutely will. A uh, story of a very corrupt police officer in a, in a narcotics force and his group of other cops who've just kind of got a system. They've been doing it for a while. They've got a whole system to, to, to make money and do whatever and, and not be afraid to murder if it comes down to it or whatever. And how eventually of course everything goes wrong. And what makes it interesting is that, but on the other hand, he actually is a pretty goddamn good cop. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things you're like, he is genuinely in a lot of ways making his neighborhood a much better place What's and his name? being Mackey a good, somewhere, right? Like, yeah, Vic Mackey. Vic Mackey. It is just so tremendously good. And uh the Sean Ryan, the showrunner of this thing, who's kind of become a superstar of television himself had always said, don't worry, he's been saying forever, we're getting to it, we're doing the Blu-ray, I just want to make sure that it was done right. And I was a little skeptical when this was being put out by Mill Creek, who's not really known for doing high-end releases. They're more like, here's a cheap, quickie Blu-ray release upgraded thing from something else, which, five, six bucks, and you've got a copy of this movie that you want, with no frills. Yeah. Okay, so I'm like, nervous. Did that not actually happen? Well, the good news is, nope, this is, I don't know why they did it specifically with Mill Creek, but uh, they put out a really solid release with a beautiful clasp book with one of those magnetic clasps that fold over. I love that. That's like my favorite way to do this. 18 discs with this complete series. Every single bonus feature that came out with the original DVDs, which is something that Mill Creek also doesn't normally do, and... Lots of brand new bonus features, which is something I was the last thing I was fucking expecting was to hear that they, oh my God, they actually added new stuff to this to make this so worth it. Uh, I mean, I, I would have been fine with just upgraded to Blu-ray copies of this, but the fact that all that is on there now too. I, I just don't even know what to say. There's like retrospectives. There was a thing from the, the Austin, Texas TV festival where they break down the writers of the shield, break down the whole show. You know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of brand new bonus features here. And like I said, Ryan personally oversaw the transfer here. Uh, the only confusion for some people and some, you might've heard some people being bitchy about that, about this. All right. So when this came on FX, it was in one thirty three one, right? But the whole thing was actually shot in 178.1, where it, when it played all over the rest of the world, it played in 178.1. This set is in 178.1. Some people who saw this in America were bitching because they were used to seeing it in the other format, and it was in the other format on the DVDs. This is technically the correct way to watch it. Depending on who you ask, and if who you ask is the actual guy who created the show, I'd say that's the correct person to ask. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is tremendous. If you've never watched this, there is no time like the present that the, the shield is, it's a master clash in television filmmaking and it even sticks the landing, which is so rare for any show to go through this many seasons and then get to the ending. And at the end, you're like, damn, that was the only way that show could have ended. How many seasons did it go? Uh, seven. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've seen a little, I've seen an episode here and there. I haven't, I haven't watched, you know, anything back to back, but I've seen an episode here and there. 
Yeah, well, I I fully recommend starting it from the beginning and going all the way through. It's one of those shows that's really hard to put down once you get started. That first episode, like the the pilot is, you're like, okay, this is good. And then you get to the ending of the pilot and you're like, holy fucking shit. They just drop a bomb on you. And you're like, oh, what the hell happens after that? So, yeah, give it a try, guys. That is actually my pick of the week. Uh, I can't think of something that was as good as that. Uh, our next movie is I Want to Hold Your Hand. Okay, this is one of those movies that I feel like has always existed in the back of my mind somewhere yeah. in this fuzzy, like, that realm between the Klingon Empire and the Federation that you're not allowed to go into, you know? Yeah. Uh, that no man's land, but you can kind of see something in the distance. I've been aware of this film at points in my life, and then it just as quickly slid out of my consciousness. So when I saw Criterion was putting it out, I was like, oh, is this a Beatles movie? I know, I know all the Beatles movies. What? What the hell is this? I know I've heard of this. And then it's like, it was the first full-length feature directed by Rod, Robert Zemeckis. And I'm like, now, come on. How do I not know about this? I've got to know about this. Um, I just never got around to seeing this. And it feels like a movie that would have played on heavy rotation on HBO when we were kids. You know what I mean? It yeah. feels like one of those movies. Because it's not really all that good. But there's all these great pieces that should work much better than they do. You're like, yeah, Robert Zemeckis, he ended up being one of the great filmmakers, just like a film or two later doing back to the future. You know, you're like, holy shit. Like how, how, you know, this is very slick. It's very professional. There's a lot of amazing people working on this. And it's a story about a bunch of really obnoxious teenagers who are trying to sneak in to meet the Beatles at a hotel they're staying at. And that's it. So (laughs) I, you know, I was open-minded. I thought I would really love this, and <laughs> I didn't really love it. I think because it was mostly, it kind of plays at the same pitch. It sort of starts at 11, and it kind of stays there for like a good hour and a half. And so I found it a little tiring uh, in that way. It didn't, didn't, it didn't play with narrative ups and downs. It just sort of like starts with screaming and ends with screaming. It's sort True. of... And most of the scenes are very histrionic and people yelling at each other. Um, and even in a way that doesn't make sense, it's like it's trying to translate Beatlemania to an alien species yeah. and what it is. Yeah. And, like, there's a character, Nancy Allen, who's like, I don't want anything to do with this. Like, all these friends on this church like, I don't want anything to do with this. I really don't even care that much about the Beatles. They're fine. But, like, the moment she's in a position where, like, like she's confronted with it. She essentially just starts having sex with Beatles memorabilia on screen. And I'm like, what is fucking happening movie? You know, it's really odd. It really does. It feels like they should have put this into like the Voyager satellite out just to explain what was going on during that period in America when we were all losing our goddamn minds over the mop top boys. Yeah. I, you know, I talked to some friends who do have a deep affection for this movie and, and do really love it. Uh, it's got Eddie Deason. Come on, what's not to love, yeah, right? Yeah, but it just didn't... Well, it's got... And I used to... When I was a little kid, because of Bosom Buddies and, and 1941, I had such a crush on Wendy Jo Sperber when I was a little kid. I saw you post that, and I was like, she's one of those actresses in this period who was like in everything. Yeah. And and sadly is not with us anymore. But, yeah. But that was not a person I would have personally imagined someone picking out as the person they had a crush on. It's so weird. When I was a little kid, yeah, I had a crush on Wendy Jo Sperber. <laughs> Um, her her name sounds like what she looks like in a weird sort of way. <laughs> I, I can get that. If she was in Back to the Future as well, 
Bachelor Party is what I always remember her from, which yeah. I'm embarrassed. Oh, she's real. Yeah, she's good in that. I'm embarrassed to admit I've seen that movie, like, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I just watched that for the first time recently. I've seen it like 30 times. It's one of those comfort food movies. It's one of the few remaining of the totally insane, like, party movies yeah. that isn't over the top wildly offensive by today's standards. I, I liked that they gave, I didn't realize that they split the ensemble into two and that they give pretty much 50 50 time to the women. Mm hmm. And their night as well. Yeah. Like, like it's pretty much split down With the middle. With Nick the Dick. Yeah. <laughs> so. It's a great, one of the best uses of Foley in film history. With like, yeah, we want to see it. We hear your Nick the Dick. And you just kind of just see him from like the waist up and his face, expressionless face. And you hear this zip, like rustling. And then just boom. <laughs> like yeah. this thud as you realize his giant penis has hit a table. And you're like, okay. That was full points to Foley guy there. Yeah. <laughs> I would. I liked the features on I Want to Hold Your Hand. I liked the stories. I liked, <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, we're talking about I Want to Hold I Your liked Hand. hearing so. Robert Zemeckis and Spielberg and Bob Gale talk about the origin of the film and how they got to know each other. I mean, if there's a reason to, to get this, it's for the bonus features. Yeah. For sure. Which you, you talking about that, that, I watched that whole thing. I mean, it's Steven Spielberg, Robert Zemeckis, and Bob Gale. They're legends and they are defining figures from this period in film and watching them talk about it is and super enlightening about you, you know what came next you get to see Zemeckis's student film that caught uh, Spielberg's eye mm-hmm. um, of yeah, a field of honor I believe is that is that what they show yeah, there's two of them on here oh, of his show, original short the films shorts? yeah the oh, lift okay. uh, in 1972 and a field of honor in 1973 which were both his college films oh in the in the one where they're having the discussion I think they show scenes of a field of honor it's yeah, the one that's inspired by Kubrick yeah yeah um, yeah uh, I mean there's a lot of stuff this is like a fascinating little microcosm of this history. It's not one. I mean, there's a good reason why this film doesn't have the legendary status. So many other films by these people do that were happening at around the same time. But I think, I think there was also a misjudgment in the late seventies. I'm going to pontificate for a minute. Do it, man. I think there was a misjudgment in the late seventies on Beatles nostalgia that I don't think that the late seventies were ready for yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think that the late seventies during this time, we're still kind of in that like fifties nostalgia mode where it was Sha Na Na and it was Happy Days and it was you know what I mean. We just fell down a wiki hole the other day with Sha Na Na. We're like, there's like eighty <laughs> members of Sha Na Na and it's insane. And one of them was a dude who was impersonating another dude mm-hmm. and actually went up on stage as him and he was like a child murderer or some shit. Ugh. Yeah, I was like, what? He's like a serial killer who's pretending to be a member of Sha Na Na. Yeah, like Grease, like all these things that were very nostalgic for the 50s. And I think the timing of a push for Beatles nostalgia, like uh, the Bee Gees doing Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band or this movie, I Want to Hold Your Hand. I just don't think that the the Beatles generation of the 60s, we saw the 60s nostalgia kick in in the late 80s. but it didn't happen. It, it the seventies weren't the time. It, I think it was still too fresh and still too new. And I don't think the audience was there for some of that. So I think that's why this film hasn't had lasting any kind of lasting power is because it didn't stick upon release. Yeah, um, that's I'm, yeah, that's my guess. But yeah, I mean, it definitely. I like I said, I I was watching so many movies back then. If there had been any sort of way to see it, I would have seen it. Mm-hmm. But there just wasn't. Um, there's a 
uh, vintage U.S. trailer. There's radio spots for this. Um, there's a new video program with Nancy Allen and Mark McClure who talk about working with Bob Zemeckis during this. You know, I did like Mark McClure in this a lot to the point that I was like, we should have seen him in more stuff. Yeah, I've, he seems like one of those guys that you would have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are, uh, and then there's a audio, vintage audio commentary with, uh, Zemeckis and Gale talking about the entire production history of this, uh, that came out in 2004 with the Universal's DVD release of the film that year. And then there's the illustrated leaflet. Um, this is Criterion. So as always, it's about as good a quality of a copy of a movie as you can hope to get. It certainly looks like it just came out yesterday which it obviously did not. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to some movies that did just come out yesterday, at least closer anyway. Uh, one of which is Nancy drew and the hidden staircase. So like full disclosure, I'm a big Hardy boys, Nancy drew guy. Oh God. Like for me, that was like, Formative shit. Yeah. Like I read all the Hardy Boys, like all of them, which are already like 150 of them when I was a kid. And then I was like, "Fuck, there's no more Hardy Boys." They're like, "We'll just read Nancy Drew." They're the exact same writer under a pseudonym. I was like, "I read all the Nancy Drew." I was like, "What am I going to do now?" I was like, "Well, there's Alfred Hitchcock presents. It's basically the same thing." Ah, oh, give me those. Yeah. Um, so. I remember when I saw Veronica Mars for the first time, I was like, yay, I finally get my Nancy Drew TV show. It's basically, come on, it's basically Nancy Drew yeah, just a lot. Watching this, I was yeah. like, this is like, we're waiting for this. Veronica Mars. Yeah, we're waiting for this to be, I wanted this so much to be between Veronica Mars. Like, yes, it'll be great. It's got the girl, uh, 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 Sophia Lillis, the redheaded little girl from It, who was really definitely a high point of that film acting yeah. wise. She's got so much charisma. She basically looks like mini me, Amy Adams. Uh, and you're like, she's going to be a big star. Everyone knows it. She seems to have the wit and the verve. Nancy Drew, baby Veronica Mars, let's do this thing. You know, it's fine. It's one of those movies that everything is good, except it just needed like four or five more script passes. You know, it's like they gave it their best effort. This feels it falls short of a proper theatrical release. And it feels like even one or two more script passes. This could have done OK in a theatrical release. But as it is, it's an OK home release. It ain't going to start a new franchise. I hate to tell you. Yeah, it's got that like there's there's I, they make this stuff for this audience a certain way every time <coughs> like going to a diner and ordering like a burger. It's like, it's sort of like they all feel like they take it, all these movies that are like these sort of like this, this got a small theatrical release. Mm -hmm. Um, but all these like kind of made for TV or DTV, um, young adult, young adults, the wrong term here. It really is tween. It really is like preteen, Movies that are live action, yeah, they all kind of feel like they all take place in the same back lot with the same sort of interchangeable background actors. They all kind of wear the same clothes. They're all also kind of shot the same. What's well, this thing where it's like it's one budgetary step beyond a Disney Channel television show? Yeah. So you never would confuse it for something specifically on the Disney Channel. But it's not real far from that either. Like, we've seen movies like this that are decidedly proper Hollywood films. I thought Goosebumps, the first Goosebumps, mm -hmm. did a good job going, okay, this doesn't feel like it would have been on the Disney Channel. This feels like a, honestly, I saw this at my multiplex and it feels like a real proper movie. Yeah. Nancy Drew is just not quite there yet. It's in that weird middle ground. I watched it with a child, uh, with an eight-year-old child, mm -hmm. and all the stuff at the beginning where... It was about social media and somebody was bullying somebody and then they kind of get him back. 
she was totally into. Once the actual mystery started, she could not have cared less. Now, I don't know if an older kid would have maybe been more into it, but once it moved away from, uh, once it moved away from that and got into like people threatening her dad and stuff, then yeah. she was sort of like, she was not having any of that. She just was not interested at all, if that's any measurement. Because, again, I'm not necessarily the target audience sure. of, this, of this movie. I mean, either. I'm not so. of this movie. A properly done Nancy Drew, I would be the target I audience. I did think for. it was weird that there was, like, a weird kind of Easter eggs for hardcore Nancy Drew. Like, maybe I'm wrong, but they sure seem that way. Because I was like, that's got to be a reference to something at the end when they're like... We should go stay at the lodge. Yeah. yeah. And if there's an evil twin that shows up, then we'll have a perfect mystery. And I'm like, there probably is some book that's like the yeah. mystery of the lodge twins or something there's, like that. I, that I'm like, I don't remember specifically, <laughs> but I do remember reading there's this movie's peppered with little references. Yeah. Um, in fact, check this out. This movie, which is based on the second Nancy Drew book, is a remake of a 1939 version of it. Yeah. 1939, this got adapted already. Now, this is completely different than that version of it, by by all means. And at, it's so much more interested in being the movie that your niece, is that correct? Oh, my goddaughter. Your goddaughter, like the parts that she enjoyed. It's so much more about that. Because the mystery is so just like, it's almost annoyed it even has to deal with it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. oh, God, we've got to do the mystery thing now. And it's really more about, like, oh, this girl and all her friends are like, you're so cool. Your brain is so awesome. You're so smart and fun. And then the evil girl, like, oh, she's bad. But, like, you know what? I guess we'll end up being friends anyway. And the only thing here that really ended up where I was like, okay, I like that, was Linda Laven. Uh, of course, famously played Alice on television, uh, for years and years, who's yeah. a wonderful comedic actress. And lately she's been in fucking everything. I've been seeing her this year in like five or six things. Like she was in the season of Santa Clarita diet. I was like, what? again? I guess so. But yeah, she's actually kind of awesome in this, but even the mystery itself is like, they basically solve it 10 minutes after discovering, like having the experience of it. And you're like, no, this is how that worked. Is this a trademark grab? Is that why they keep doing these like I, I out of left so. field it Nancy c- Drew movies? Is there somebody that's like a stakeholder in like some copyright thing where it's like, oh, I, in order to maintain the rights to Nancy Drew movies, I have to make one every seven years? Like, I, I mean, it could be. If it, it had, it, I kind of felt that way to me. I, I mean, it, the weird thing is, like I said, it's got the right pieces and it's based on the right Nancy Drew book to be a better movie. It just needed somebody who was like, had experience with comedy to come in here and give it a polish. You know, if this movie had found a way to actually be funny, I'd say, yeah, it's pretty solid, but it's not, you yeah. know, it's it, at best. You might chuckle once or twice. Um, there is uh, a few actual extras here, uh, of the type of thing that exactly what you would expect with kids movies, but nothing really special, but there is a gag reel. Weirdly enough, so it has an awful cover. It does. It has a cover that absolutely no thought went into yeah, of any it's, kind. It's really, really like it's it's a bad, bad cover. Well, let's talk about a much better movie, and that is Stan and Ollie. Now, I did review this uh, during highly suspect reviews this year, so I will let John tell us about what this movie's about. You know, I thought it was going to be more biographical and more widely spanning of the career of uh, Oliver Hardy and Stan Laurel. Yeah, me too. Um, it really is a uh, focuses on one particular 
tour, one particular moment in their career where they're already, it's way late in their career. They're already kind of passe. They're working to get a Robin Hood movie off the ground, which apparently was something that they were talking about late in life. They were trying to get this Robin Hood movie off the ground. And they go on a tour that doesn't quite go the way that they want it to, but ends up picking up some steam as word of mouth gets out. And then they sort of reach a crisis in their personal relationship um, during this kind of like last gasp of performing that the two of them are doing. Dude, that was um, wonderfully succinct. You really well, just nailed this movie in the minimum amount of words to color exactly <laughs> what people are in for. That was, that was very, you should be writing the blurbs on the back of boxes. Thank you. <laughs> um, you have John C. Riley as, uh, as Oliver Hardy and, um, Steve Coogan as, as, uh, Stan Laurel doing really good acting jobs. Um, I think once I got over that initial hump of, oh, this is not what I expected, then I got into it, and I, and I really enjoyed it. Um, it's, a, it's a simple movie, and it's a character study. Uh, it's, it's not one of those that's, you know, sometimes you watch a, a movie that's encapsulating of a career, and it makes you want to go out and seek out a whole bunch of work by those people. I don't know that this movie necessarily does that. When mm. you finish Stan and Ollie, I don't know that you're left like, oh, i got to go back and watch some old clips or some old films. Right. They're um, all probably all on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, but it is a good movie and it is a good movie about, I, I felt like it did a pretty good job of, of it's not that it's not cliche, but it doesn't wallow in the cliches. Mm-hmm. It felt pretty nimble in regards to, okay, we recognize that some of the stuff about like a band breaking up or two partners that have been together forever doing entertainment, breaking up. We realize that there's going to be particular like showbiz cliches that are part and parcel with this. Yeah. And we're going to try to kind of dance around those as nimbly as we can. Uh, and I thought they did a good job with that. I don't think it ever, I don't think it ever fell into a trap of feeling cliche, even though a lot of the, a lot of the beats felt really familiar from those kind of movies. Yeah. No, I, I, I think I agree with pretty much everything you're saying. Um, I, this is a sad movie for sure. I mean, like, like not totally tragic, sad, just somber perhaps is a better term. Yeah. Um, if you're watching a movie about two comedy legends, you generally probably went into it expecting it to be more of a comedy than you're actually going to get here. A little bit disappointed as a big fan growing up of Laurel and Hardy. Um, just, I'm not that old. I just, one of those things, my parents kind of brought it to me when I was young. Chris watched them, uh, at, at vaudeville. Yeah, I was there. Before they the even started making movies. Um, yeah, I drove up in my horse and buggy and, you know. I, he, he stood in line for their first talkie. <laughs> it was, it was just unnecessary. I was like, what is this even for? This is just terrible. Are all, are, you're just ruining movies with your talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, still not. And then the color thing. Ugh, film hasn't been the same since. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I wanted to see a movie about their whole career. I'm like, these guys had a fascinating life, like met and hung out with tons of famous people, had lots of ups and downs. Great story. Why are we only focusing on this one little period? And I think it's fine as a film. I just kind of wanted to see that other film. Yeah. You know? Uh, but there are a few featurettes on here. There's a casting Q, uh, crew Q&A. There's a few uh, deleted and extended scenes, about ten and a half minutes worth of that. And then a, a trailer. Um, and that's about it. I mean, it's a, it's a modest but more extras than I expected for a film that didn't really expand much past your local art house theater. But, man, John C. Riley uh, nails it. It's a good chance to see him try to do something really different because it's been a while since he's he's really flexed as an actor like that. I mean, this came out like a month from 
Oh, away from what was the one? The, Holmes the, and Watson. Yeah, one of the worst movies yeah. re- reportedly. I have not seen it of the whole year. Uh, <laughs> playing another character from a very pretty much the same period, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm like. That's how did that? Okay, I just don't understand anything. I don't know. Let's move on to a uh, a film I had not seen until uh, they sent it to me, and I honestly was startled they sent it to press because there was nothing vaguely resembling a press screening for The Mule when it came out in theaters. I remember going, "There's a huge Clint Eastwood film, and they're not showing it to press." Nope. I was like, "Wow, it must be bad." Here's a surprising thing: it's really not bad. It's absurd that it exists and some of the things that it does are really absurd but as just to watch a crotchety old guy play by Clint Eastwood but that's really likable go about his day is I found quite enjoyable um, I do recommend watching the John Mulaney Pete Davidson Saturday Night Live sketch where they describe watching this movie which is the funniest thing I think I've seen all year uh, where he's like uh now, let me be clear. Clint Eastwood has two three-ways in this movie. Two. It was Pete Davidson talking. Now, I've had one, and I assume, John, you've had none, right? It's like, it's, there's stuff like that, or like, this movie's about proving that a white guy is better at every job that a Mexican can do, including being a Mexican drug mule. <laughs> Which is, you know, yeah. okay, all that stuff is true, but I still really enjoyed watching this. I'm guessing from John's face, he's got that face he has where I'm like, here it comes. He's about to tell me how wrong I am. I would not tell you that you're wrong, but I did not enjoy this. The first line of the movie is racist. Uh, he sees that the guy has a new truck and is like, oh, you got yourself a new taco truck? And I'm like, why would you call that fancy new truck a taco truck other right. than the fact that the guy is like Mexican? Well, it's just- I was like, well, how is the first line of this movie already establishing the tone of like race relations? I mean, I argue that he's going, saying, yeah, this character, I mean, it's like, um, God, what is the other one he did uh, where he's kind of playing an old crotchety racist? Um, Gran Torino. Gran Torino, where it's like, yes, he's racist, but it's because he's a product of his time and he's racist in that way that he doesn't even know he's being racist yeah. and he actually doesn't have anything against any of these guys on any level. Yeah, He I, just doesn't get it. Like, he at one point in this movie gets called out about it and he's like, I'm sorry. I uh, Okay, yeah, no problem. I, that was my deal with the movie is the general, like, kind of like, it's based on a true story and it feels, yet it feels unbelievable. And I think it's because Eastwood plays him like half an idiot where he's just sort of like, well, that and like he has he, two, three ways. He, he kind of <laughs> acts like he doesn't even know what he's doing. Yeah. And I'm like, the guy in real life knew what he was doing. Right. He was old. But he knew what he was doing. Right. And this is kind of like, oh, shucks. Yeah, I guess I need a little bit of money, so I guess I'll go for, on another uh, delivery trip for you guys. And it was just very, like... Yeah, working for a drug Mexican drug cartel transport, because who would suspect this 80-something-year-old guy driving his old beat-up truck across the country? Who would who would suspect that guy? Yeah. You know, no one. They look at him and go, and sure enough, there's the scene with Bradley Cooper, who's in charge of the task force to figure out who the super mule is. Like, has an encounter with him and didn't even occur to him for a second that this could be the guy. There's something oddly, like, sanitized, I felt like, about a lot of that stuff where I'm like, that that probably wasn't the case in real life. I don't know how you could make that many trips 
and go about it with this sort of like doopy doo like I because I think they they start counting the trips in the movie right and it yeah. ends up being like there's there's like over a dozen trips back and forth cross country yeah with with and I looked up some of the stuff is like he's carrying at one point he he transported two million dollars back in his truck and yeah like, it was like a record breaking yeah, like trip and I'm sure that the I'm sure that the guy in real life was a sweet old man, but I also don't think he was a freaking idiot. Right. And I just felt like Clint Eastwood played this character so half clueless that it removed any, it removed me from the reality of the situation where I'm like, there's no way this guy was just so nonchalant about like, it's just like any, acted like it was just like any other thing. Like somebody told him, go to the store and get some tomatoes or whatever. (laughs) He's like, you know, but it's like, oh, in actuality, it's go to, you know, yeah, he wasn't. He's not playing a casino. He's just kind of like, well, whatever. Yeah, you know. Yeah, he's like, I get. It's like he knows what he's doing, but he doesn't really absorb the weightiness of it. You know, at and any there's time. There's nothing in the movie that treats that with any like great deal of drama or mm-hmm. weight or decision that has to be made. It's just like... Because I don't think right. Eastwood has any interest in making this a drama or a real-life story. And once I figured that out watching it, I was like, I like this movie for exactly what it is. I don't know if I want to watch a drama about the real-life guy because it's not that interesting of a story. It's like, yeah, that happened, and there's not really a lot else to say about it. Like, this version of it... It's just charming old Clint Eastwood. It is most charming and lightly racist, but then confronting his own light racism and being like, shucks, I'm sorry. It's just kind of charming. I don't know. I like, I don't care it isn't real. I enjoyed watching it. It's light, very light comedy. You found it to be a comedy? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You did not think so? Um... No, I, I thought it was a drama. I mean, it describes itself as one, but there's not very much dramatic about it. I mean, there's, like, the stuff with, like, his family doesn't really like him, and for good reason, because he's an asshole. Yeah. Um, Towards them, anyway. He seems to be really nice to pretty much everyone else, but towards his family, he's a real prick. Uh, And that whole aspect kind of felt really flat for me overall. It kind of finds a way to fix it that's just feels really convenient. Like they were just paying no attention. They're like, who cares? Whatever. Let's just get past this. Yeah. Um, but most of the movie has nothing to do with that. It's just him. Like he's on these road trips and the guy who's supposed to be watching him is getting so frustrated. Cause he's like, he stops at one point to help a person change the tire on the side of the road. Because that's what a good American does. They're like, ah, oh, your truck is filled with cocaine <laughs> that I found really funny. I don't know. That's me. Yeah, it was not about this one. And two, three ways. <laughs> was not, I was not about this one. Fair enough, fair enough. Lawrence Apparently, the real guy, when he was sentenced, offered, he was like, let me make you a deal to the U.S. government, and offered to grow them a half million dollars of Hawaiian papaya. I heard and The government that. was like, no, no, thank you. We're good. <laughs> You're going but to he, jail. He ended up getting almost no sentence whatsoever, yeah. though. I think he was in jail for, like, not barely a year, and then they're like, okay, you can go. You're like a thousand. Just yeah. go die somewhere. <laughs> uh, Michael Pena is in this as well. Lawrence Fishburne, Diane Weist, and Andy Garcia bafflingly playing this like good natured drug lord. He's just a, he's like the drug lord version of Clint Eastwood. <laughs> it's a weird part. Anyway, uh, this, 
if you care to see this or purchase it for yourself, there's 11 minute uh, making of the mule. It's a short featurette with, uh, you know, everybody involved talking about it. And then there's a music video for Toby Keith's Don't Let the Old Man In that I did not watch. For reasons that are very specific to me not liking Toby Keith mm. at all. Did you feel like Bradley Cooper was a little checked out? Bradley Cooper's barely in it. He's there just as a as, as a mechanism to make it feel like there's something, there's a clock ticking. That's his only purpose of being in this film. That, yeah. you know, that he's there to be the ticking clock as how much longer this can go on before it gets stopped. Our last film this week is another film I didn't see in theaters, which weirdly... The first Transformers film they did not screen for press, and it's the only good Transformers <laughs> film. And I was like, the press loved this movie. Why did not you not show Bumblebee to critics? Will always baffle me. And I remember having people tell me, no, no, it's genuinely good. I was like, no, it isn't. There's <laughs> no way it's good. And this movie, which is a prequel to all the other films, and now they're like, uh, it's a reboot because it was so popular. Like, no, no, it's a total reboot. Uh, is the sixth installment, uh, fo- focusing on the character of Bumblebee, uh, who is, I guess, one of the most popular Transformers. Well, the other thing too is it ends up being kind of, it's a, it has a reboot cool feel to it because yeah. it, it follows the plot of the first Transformers film, <laughs> but it's like a, it's like taking a mulligan in golf. Like we already made this movie once, but we're going to make this movie again. Which is there's a teenager that likes working on cars, and they want their first car, and they get their first car, and it's a fixer upper, and it turns out to be a robot hiding on Earth from Decepticons who are out to get it. And I'm like, this is all basically basically the a first remake, movie. yeah, but but it's reduced in like, scale, it's reduced in scale, yeah, and and it's got a little, it's got a lot of Iron Giant kind of injected into it. Um, and, and it's just better. Was exactly the right decision. Yeah, like the only they were like the first film had like the trappings of a movie that had a heart, mm-hmm. but it didn't. It was just all robotic and mechanical. No pun intended. Um, this movie genuinely has a heart that you can feel and see pulsing, and makes you even have the feels a bit, you know. And this is because of a director, Travis Knight, who uh, previously made the astonishing Kubo and the Two Strings the previous year for Leica. In fact, I believe he's yeah he's the lead animator and basically the the guy who runs the the studio Leica. Him making his first live action film here, it made me go. Why don't they always let animators direct these type movies? Because, holy shit, I could even follow what was going on in the robot fights. Like, that was one of the problems with all the other movies. I'm like, I have no idea who's punching who or doing what and what the resonance of that is. And who is that character? I don't know who they are or or what even happened. And this, you watch robots fighting, which, yes, by the way, the actual rest of the Transformers and Decepticons, or at least several of them, do make appearances. And there is a pretty sizable big fight scene towards the opening of this movie that takes place on wherever the fuck Transformers are from. Um, they're from Target. <laughs> yes, they are, John. Yes, they are. Uh, and you could actually follow the action in a way that you're like, oh, this is actually like when you when you watch someone who knows how to animate a good fight scene, you're mm-hmm. like, oh, cool, I get it, and you give me a sense of of velocity and motion that 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 even though it's all artificial, I feel that thud and that sense yeah. of realism you get from a well filmed fight. A, and a care for the original Transformers designs, being like. These designs, there's a reason these designs were appealing. Let's keep these designs instead mm-hmm. of throwing the designs out. Yeah, they do not throw the designs out. They, they look true. like, they, especially in that opening, they look like the classic 
you know, Transformer characters and yeah. things like that. So, I mean, they pretty much are exactly the same designs, yeah. um, even with the same voice actors like Peter Cullen, of course, because you're yeah. not going to do it without, you know, Optimus Prime without him. But this movie is about this. I mean, that it's a comedy with, with about like this girl and, and her pet robot, a friend that has a lot in common with other movies, like it's with E.T. and with, uh, oh my God, I'm going to say it, Short Circuit. I kept thinking of Short Circuit when yeah. I was watching this. Um, it's kind of charming. I mean, I was sad that John Cena didn't actually have more to do. He's really just here for there to be a human nemesis and then to have kind of a cute ending. And John Cena's career seems like it's kind of skyrocketing really fast. And we all kind of like him right now. We're like, yeah, he's really funny. He's good at what he does. He's He, he had a, a misstep 10 years ago. Well, I forget what it was called, The Patriot or something like that. Oh, the Marine? The Marine. The Marine. Yeah, that was not good. And everyone, he was like, oh, sorry, guys, sorry. And he just backed away from the camera for 10 years. And now he's back and doing comedy, and he's pretty good at it. So it's like, yeah, that's kind of a shame He they didn't give him more to do here. But Haley Steinfeld is turning into one of the best young actresses of her generation. She's very charismatic. And she carries this movie really well, as does Travis Knight by his his way of figuring out what to do with a transformer. Mm. And you did not see this theatrically at all. No, I just watched this at home and I was, I was, you know, I I don't think it's one of the best movies of the year or anything, but it's really charming and it's thoroughly enjoyable. It's a movie. I will definitely go back and watch again at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And much to my surprise, there's a good transformers movie finally. And it's this one, unless you want to count the last one, which is, we were talking earlier about accident. Those movies that reach a level of bad that are so, mind-boggling that you I, almost enjoy watching it. I had to give up on Transformers after three because I watched one and liked it okay. But one is also the only one that has like those Spielbergian fingerprints on it. Mm. I mean, again, getting back to the first half of it sort of being about a boy in his car, um, two was god-awful. Two is, and, two is and yeah. Three, I three was also awful. Like, awful to the point where... I'm leaving the theaters and I'm going like, these are not movies designed for me. Like I hate what I just watched Yeah, from top to bottom, every core of my being. Yep. Like I'm angry. We're right there. Um, and so I did not see four and five because I was like, I, I cannot go watch these because they make me mad. Four is the worst one. Pirates movies. (laughs) I'm exactly the same way where I like the first pirates pretty good. Didn't like two. hated three and went, I can't watch these because they're going to make me angry. I'm going to leave angry because these make all the money in the world and they're absolute garbage. Yeah. And Bumblebee, the trailers sold me. So I didn't need to be, I didn't need to, nobody had to bend my arm to go see Bumblebee. I mean, especially when they're like, they're showing like the more classic designs and stuff and the stuff that I grew up with, you know, the classic eighties transformers. And I'm like, all right, like I'm in this trailer looks good. Um, my only, my only beef with this movie is that I feel like I'd seen this story already. Sure. And, and even though it was a better version of the story, I felt like it was like considerably, they, they, they literally pretty much remade one and they made it better. Yeah. I mean, I think that's fine though, because I, as much as you were like, yeah, you liked one. Okay. I despised one when oh. it came out, like the angry, whatever. Yeah. I never saw two. Because everyone was like, oh, dude, no. Oh, dude, there's like... Um, they- three, I was like, this is terrible, but it's better than one. Yeah. Uh, four is the most boring blockbuster film I've ever seen in my entire life. I think during our review, we're like, there's a giant robot with a flaming sword riding into battle on the back of a giant robotic T-Rex that spits fire, 
and it's boring. While it's happening, you're like, someone wake me when something interesting happens. You fucked up making that movie if that's what's going on. Yeah. And, and the last one is just, it's like this last desperate attempt that is so over the top ridiculous and bad in every way. It, like, it really feels like the script they had thrown out right from the beginning because it was just too stupid. And finally they're like, well, we've tried everything else. Let's, I guess let's try, uh, let's try Fred's little brother's script. That, 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 where is that? Is that still in the garbage can? Go bring that out here. And it's just so bad that it's actually kind of fun to watch. Yeah. <laughs> There's no justice that Bumblebee didn't make the, the money that some of its predecessors yeah, have made. But this might be a solid new reboot to the series if they actually let keep Michael Bay far for, and his ilk far, far away from the series and start handing it off to people who might actually, you know, care about it a little. Yeah. Um, there are a good amount of extra features here. The sector seven archive, uh, John Cena doing a little, hi, you're now a member of the agency. Welcome type thing. And then there's sector seven adventures, the battle at half dome, which is a motion comic version of a physical comic, which is included actually with the release itself. There's, uh, 20 minutes almost of deleted and extended scenes. There's uh, nine and a half minutes of outtakes. There's B-Vision, the Transformers robots of Cybertron, which is four minutes of the opening war scene where they pause it at points to point out to you where all the Transformers are that we've seen before and who they are in that scene. Like, look, there's so-and-so. I don't know the names of any of the trans. I know Optimus Prime and I... There's one, they're like a Shatterstar or some or Starscream, that's it. There's Starscream. one called Starscream, and that one's got the cassette tape, which makes no sense I'm trying to think now. of who I saw. I saw By the I way, if they, had, if they had never heard of Earth, right? Like, in the beginning, they're like, we've never even heard of Earth, right? We don't even know what Earth is. And yet, they're already transforming into what are clearly Earth vehicles on that sequence. I'm like, this makes no fucking sense. Who? What? You should have made a thing. No, we've been to Earth. Everybody's been to Earth. Come on. Yeah. Like, we've got... I mean, it's like a vacation spot. <laughs> you know? Because otherwise, why does this guy look like a Walkman? <laughs> Doesn't yeah. make any sense. Um, sorry. Uh, there's bringing Bumblebee to the big screen, a five-part feature. And that's it. But there's, that's actually pretty long. This is a solid home release. And it's in 4K, which looks and sounds terrific. I thought. Mm-hmm. Are we on got the same sound, page? Got on a soundtrack one? of '80s hits. Yeah. yeah, well, '90s, right? '80s. Was it '80s? Yeah. I don't know, I've always they play uh, they play uh, Howard Jones. Um, That's true. Things can only get better. Right. Yeah, it's '80. All '80 songs. It, it, you didn't buy the soundtrack. I did not buy the soundtrack. You're like, I lived the soundtrack, buddy. I I have that song running through my head a lot. So when it's in the movie, I'm like, oh, it's that song. Oh. Oh, 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 I know oh, the song. Yeah, 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 I'm just kind of surprised to hear you say you have that song running through your head a lot. It runs through my head a lot. That's a, that's an odd yeah. choice. I wouldn't Sorry. have guessed that. And I kind of have a picture of the inner workings of John Golson now. Anyway, that is it for this week's Digital Noise. Thank you so much for listening. Um, please join us again in another week or two when we do the next episode with a lot more movies. If you are going to buy any of these movies on the page itself, there is a whole bunch of pictures of the films we're talking about, along with the runtime, uh, not runtimes, I'm sorry, uh, time codes of when we talked about them in the podcast. If you click on any of those images, it will take you to the accompanying Amazon.com page that if you buy that item, we get a nice little kickback from Amazon. But in fact, 
If you're going to buy anything from Amazon, please just start from one of our links, because even if you don't buy that particular item from one of our links and you go and keep scrolling on Amazon for something else that you actually want to buy, whatever you end up buying at that point, we get a kickback. So please do that. It 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 helps. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you so much, John. Is there anything you want to tell people about uh, where you can follow me on Twitter at Golson, G-H-O-L-S-O-N. And if you live here in Austin at the end of June... I am writing, directing, and producing my own sketch comedy show called uh, Journey to the Center of the Middle. That will be <laughs> Great name. Uh, the last two Thursdays in June here at the Fallout Theater in Austin, Texas. That's awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much, everybody.